Good morning, family. It's good to be with you this morning. As we embark on a journey through a letter that I've never actually preached before in 24 years, and that is the epistle 2 Corinthians. I'm calling this a letter of grace, and I hope by the end of the series, hopefully even before the end, you'll see why I'm calling it a letter of grace. There's a portrait by Rembrandt there of the Apostle Paul writing a letter, uh, dressed, of course, in medieval clothes because they didn't have the archaeological information yet to know what the ancients wore, but probably not too different. Uh, but I'm calling this uh, verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, the God of all comforts. So as I thought about an introduction this morning, uh, I couldn't come up with anything other than to tell you we were starting 2 Corinthians. Uh, but then something dawned on me, so I'm going to go with that and see how it turns out. I want you to imagine a little boy who grows up relatively isolated with his family, who uh, is uh, on the property where they live, which is kind of a wooded property. Um, I mean, they go into town, they have some interactions with people, but he basically is an inland uh, place where he and his family lives, and they have a, a rather large pond there. And on that pond, his daddy and his papaw uh, teach him, and probably mama and mama also teach him some things about filleting fish and uh, scaling them and taking care of them, how to cook them up. But he learns there on that pond to fish and to know uh, and read the waters and to understand uh, when's a good time of the day. And he also comes to learn over time that there are things in the woods and things in the water that are dangerous. Um, perhaps there's water moccasins that you don't want to mess with. There are certain kinds of spiders like the uh, elusive but yet ever-present uh, brown recluse. Maybe there's rattlers here. Uh, maybe there's snapping turtles that can take off your fingers or your toes at a single snatch. Uh, so he understands, and he goes out on his boat. He learns to navigate the waters. He knows not to be out there when there's a storm and there's swells. And as he grows up there, he feels like he's got a good sense of what uh, this land is about and what the woods around it are about, and particularly this body of water that provides sustenance. And, and uh, he knows there's dangers there. Um, but he also knows this is a place where there's life and, and sustenance. Now, imagine that that boy had never been told about this thing called the ocean. I was told that he was going a fishing trip on the ocean. And the only idea that he has is the ocean is kind of like your pond, just bigger. Well, that is a great understatement. Not only is it bigger, much bigger seemingly infinitely bigger and deeper, things that we've not yet even gotten to the bottom of, creatures in there that look like something out of a fantasy literature. And there are things that will kill you in ways that your pond never thought about. And you'll be swallowed up in it and nobody will ever find you or your body or the remains of your body. There are things there that are unlike anything you've ever experienced before. Similar to the pond, but very different than the pond. I must confess that I am that little boy. And my Christian life is the pond and the woods. And when I come to 2 Corinthians and see the life of Paul, and the life of Paul particularly with the churches, I see an ocean of unfathomable depth and suffering and joy and beauty. And I hope by the end you will feel something that of, as well. It's the kind of letter that makes me wonder if I've ever understood what suffering is, what being a pastor means, or sometimes even what, what it is to follow after Christ. And I don't want that to be a discouraging thing, I want us to look at the ocean of this letter and be overwhelmed and awed, particularly of how someone, by the grace of Christ, can navigate this overwhelming ocean by his grace. I don't know what else to say. So I hope you have that picture. That's how I'm feeling coming to 2 Corinthians. So now I'm leading you, the little boy, out to the ocean going, hey, let me show you some stuff here. So obviously, as a tour guide... Through 2 Corinthians, I feel like I haven't even plumbed the depths of this thing. How am I going to tell you anything about it? But 
Thankfully, we have the experience, the words of Paul, and the grace of Jesus to walk us through. So this is a letter of grace. So what we're going to do is just thinking about this boy in the boat, his fishing and so on. I want to go back, and I'm not going to go all the way back. Was it seven, eight years ago that I preached through 1 Corinthians? I'm sure it seems like yesterday to you. No, it doesn't. It seems like a long time ago. And I spent a whole, and, and Susan just reminded me a couple of weeks ago when I was, we decided to do 2 Corinthians. She, she said, was it seven or eight years ago? Do you remember? 2016. See, she threw out a number. So that's six years ago, right? You know me in numbers. Just give me a number. So six years ago then, see, I can't even remember the right number. So six years ago then, I think last month is when I started 1 Corinthians, and that was not a plan. So here we are in 2 Corinthians, but I, she reposted, reshared a post, a memory, uh, feeling like that was a college lecture on, in a good way, I hope, I think, on the city of Corinth. Well, I'm not going to do that again. I'm only going to refer to you, like, if you want to deep dive into the city of Corinth in the ancient world, Go listen to that message. I'll send you a link on it if you wish, but I'm not going to rehash that again because it was only six years ago. Surely you remember all of that. But also, I don't know that all of the particulars, some of the particulars I think did play into 1 Corinthians in a way that they don't all play into 2 Corinthians. And I'll tell you why as we go along. But here's what you do need to know about Corinth. It's Somebody likened it, one YouTube guy likened it to the the Las Vegas of the ancient world and explain why. And I think, I think it's, there's good buy-in because Las Vegas is like this isolated, weird thing out in the middle of the desert. I've never been there, but you know, they say things like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but it's this strange land of decadence and, and gambling and all of this stuff. And I'm sure they're family friendly, whatever's too, but it's known as the decadent place. Like if you want to go, and get married and, and have a divorce a week later, Vegas is the place to go. If you want to go gamble your life savings away, that's the place to go. If you want to do X, Y, Z, and I've heard they've cleaned it up a bit, but it still has that reputation. Well, that's Corinth, even in the ancient world, even compared to Rome. Corinth was this crossroads of crazy ideas and sailors and people and temple prostitutes and wealth and if you wanted to make it in the world and, and, and climb the social ladder or the economic ladder quickly, if you wanted to get rich quick, Corinth was the place to go. Now, remember that the people of Corinth, the, the church of Corinth, they are converted out of this culture. And, and, and it's maybe we complain about our culture and the problems of our culture, and that's all true. But, it, but it's it's like. TikTok star wannabes on crack, on steroids, to the nth degree. That, I mean, this, the whole city is just infused with this energy and this desire to make it and health and wealth and prosperity. And this is the place you come to get healed. This is the place you come to hear great motivational speakers. It was all about success. It was all about upward mobility. It was all about power and victory and overcoming. As a matter of fact, most of the Corinthian church, according to one commentator I read, and, and, and he had a compelling argument, was not the, the, the ones who were like of the lower class or the, the poorer class. The majority of, of the church at Corinth actually were quite wealthy patrons and well-to-do merchants, which is why we find in 1 Corinthians the problem of them eating and drinking, and then the few poor people who had to come later in the day uh, didn't have anything to eat or drink for the church service. But this is like the Vegas of the ancient world. If you can kind of picture that and then picture Christians being born out of, born again, out of that culture. And we all know, right? When you come to Jesus, like all of your cultural trappings fall off. You immediately overcome sins. You don't have any attitudes. I mean, most of us just accelerate it immediately, right? No, we don't. Some of us still feel like 15-year-old selves wondering and, and marveling that they give us keys to things like a car. Or we have a house and a mortgage, or we have kids or grandbabies, and you go, man, does anybody, when am I going to get caught here? Somebody's going to expose me for being the 15-year-old insecure little kid that still is trying to make his way. Anybody else feel that way? Or maybe it's just me, and I'm a weirdo, but I feel like 15-year-old Steve. 
wondering if anybody really likes me. But so my point is, being converted out of these cultures, as much as we might like to have a radical conversion experience, what the two letters of Corinth tell us is that just didn't happen here. I mean, it's a miracle on many levels that any of them believe in Jesus at all. That Gentile pagans from Las Vegas, Corinth, are converted and believe on Jesus is amazing. And you say, man, that seems like that would be really messy. And First Corinthians tells us, <laughs> you don't even, you, you just wait. Like, you just wait. These are not monotheistic ethical Jews who have Pharisaism and, and outward facades of righteousness. These are people decadent being converted. This is what you should expect in that kind of a pagan church, which Paul calls over and over the saints, the called out ones, the church. Now, there are actually, we call it 2 Corinthians, but it's actually four letters that we know of. In 1 Corinthians, there's a reference to uh, Paul writing in 1 Corinthians says, when I wrote you, which means, hey, there was another letter. So he had already written before 1 Corinthians. Let me start over here. He'd already written that letter. Then we have 1 Corinthians. Now we have 2 Corinthians. And in 2 Corinthians, he, he, he refers to a severe letter, which is not, doesn't appear to be 1 Corinthians. So what we have is really... 0 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, 1.5 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians, which is a 4 total. So this is actually at least the fourth letter that we know of that Paul wrote this church. This was a high-maintenance church. The, the, these, these were on cruise control, going through their discipleship lessons, growing in the grace of God. This church, or these churches, probably it's a conglomerate of various house churches within Corinth, or somebody who had a house large enough to host a large amount of people, which is also very probable. There's at least four letters. This is a problem church. And Paul has gone through incredibly difficult things with this church. As a matter of fact, think of some of the previous issues that we find in 1 Corinthians. They have taken their favorite preacher, whether it's Cephas or Paul or Apollos. Some says, I'm of Jesus. I've been named. I've been baptized in so-and-so's name. So what they like is celebrity culture. I'm of Piper. I'm of Sproul. I'm of whoever. I'm of so-and-so. And, and it's not just I enjoy this. And I'm just picking them because those are some of the guys that we know. But now they're battling out and they're actually pitting. Well, MacArthur can't be right because Piper said this. Or R.C. taught this, and, and that, that's, what, that's what's going on in the church. And they, so, but now you've got apostles and Apollos, who's a great rhetorician and speaker, and they're taking up, and they are factions in the church. So there's like the John Piper section over there, and here's the R.C. Sproul section over here, and here's the big, and they're, they're dividing in the church, and they're arguing and debating this, except for it's Peter and Paul and Apollos. And some people are so spiritual, they just say, well, we just believe in Jesus. You know, it's like, okay, yes, you're, you're right, but that's a bigger conversation. So there are these previous issues. So they've got that problem. They've got the pneumaticos, the spiritual ones. There were some who were kind of like, we're the spiritual ones. And, and what, what things did they do? Well, some of them were so spiritual, they said to their spouse, you know, because we're spiritual we're not going to have relations anymore. Because really, it's about the spirit. It's about the soul. And that sex thing is so dirty and unnecessary. And the other spouse is going, oh, okay. <laughs> so there's problems of them withholding themselves from one another. Some of them got, took that so far that they were saying, you know, and actually this whole marriage thing, I think I want to be married to Jesus, so I'm going to divorce you. So that's a problem that they have. At Corinth, they've got problems of some people coming down. And I think I think it's the influence of the paganism that, that they were raised in, where they went into ecstatic utterances and probably used hallucinogenics to go into visions and ecstatic dancing and sexual activities at, at the temples of Aphrodite and of Apollo. And, and they, that, they were bringing that into the church. And it's like, man, if we get out of control and we get overtaken by the Holy Spirit, who, Lord knows what I'm going to say. I might even say stuff you don't even understand. Like, this is going to be the tongues of men's and men and angels, baby. Like, this is just going to go wild. That's going on at the church at Corinth when we read it in 1 Corinthians. 
They've got problems with with uh, uh, order. They've got problems with disruption. They've got a problem with love. And then we get all all the way to 1 Corinthians 15. And some of them were so steeped in Greek philosophy that they denied that Jesus, or they denied that there was going to be a future physical resurrection from the dead. They're just like, look, one of the philosophers said that the, ha- the, 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 the body is the prison house of the soul and, and death is a release and the ultimate gain is to be released from the body in this present material world and, and the brokenness of the world and just go to heaven and, and be without a body forever. And so there's no resurrection from the dead. And that's where Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, well, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus has not been raised from the dead. They're actually denying the resurrection of Jesus by doing so. Like, so they have practical problems. They've got theological problems. They've got resurrection problems. This church has got all kinds of problems. And he goes through 1 Corinthians now concerning, now concerning, now concerning. And then they've got issues they're arguing over days of the week. Should we carry over the Jewish festivals? Well, we're Gentiles. And they're dividing over that. And then some of them are saying, look. There are people in the church who are eating food sacrificed to idol. How do we handle that? How do we deal with uh, idols? How do we deal with that? And so this church, and as soon as someone says, you know, <laughs> I've heard this, seriously, you know, we just need to go back to the early church. We want to be like the Corinthian church. Well, like, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Like, have you ever read 1 Corinthians 14 in the context of the whole letter? And you want to be like that church? It's the most problematic church, at least the church of Galatia had one issue they were dealing with, denying the gospel in this particular way. But Corinth had a ton of ways that they were doing this. So for the factions between their favorite preachers, their their marital breakdown because of this hyper-spiritualization, the divorce, all of this, the Corinthian church is a mess. And yet Paul opens up and says, To all of the saints, I am confident that God is going to sanctify you and keep you to the final day. Like most of us and most of our books on the church and ecclesiology, if it analyzed this kind of church, would say something like, that's not even a true church. Like if I've I've done this in Zambia, some of you have heard this story. I've done this in Zambia where I'll actually go through some of the process. I said, I want you to imagine you got a charismatic church down the street speaking in tongues, out of control, and there's the divorce rate is high, and they're doing this, and I'm actually describing the Corinthian church. I'm like sneaking in the back door. I'm, I'm, I'm avoiding the dragon and coming in the back door, and, and, and I was like, okay, brothers, so would you say that's a Christian church? What would you say about them? They're like, oh, no, no, it's not a Christian church. No, it's not. I was like, well, actually, Paul said that they were, and then I walked through reading 1 Corinthians 1. It's like, that's that's a letter of grace to believe that God had actually worked by his spirit in conversion to this group of people that was giving him such a difficult time, which brings us into second Corinthians. OK, well, surely because you hear this. Yes. Well, a church may be like that for a while. Christians may be like that for a while, but when the word of God comes to them, man, it's going to change them and God will only let them go so far to which I say, let's see. Let's see how this went. Because we've got a true apostle filled by the Holy Spirit, preaching the word of God to what he says is a true church. What happens? Well, what happens is they all get mad at him and reject his authority. They reject essentially everything within, within 1 Corinthians. And they get mad at him. And they continue to be factioned. And they continue to, and then they begin to question his apostleship. And then what we find in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, i.e. 2 and 4, is what he calls a severe letter. He writes a letter that's very pointed, and we don't have it. We just, we don't have the contents. We have a sense that he feels bad about sending it. That's what he himself says in 2 Corinthians. He talks about this severe letter that caused you anguish, and I didn't want it to cause you anguish. And then he comes for a visit, what he calls the difficult and tearful visit. So in between 1 and 2 Corinthians, he writes a letter. They don't receive that well. There's actually an uprising against him. 
headed up by apparently some some influential and financially well-to-do people in the church. And then he's like, well, I'll go see this for myself. He gets there and it makes things worse. Because Paul isn't this shining figure of victory. He's not a sharp smile infused Uh, sharp-looking, successful Joel Osteen character. He walks in as a man who can barely walk, barely see, trembles at the speaking of his word, walks in and is broken, broken, broken. His back is scarred. He is infected. He comes in and they read the severe letter. And he basically says, I'm coming your way. He walks in the door and they're like... That's not very impressive. And they reject him. But some hear him. And some are moved by him. And as he again presses the gospel on them, they are moved. And at least a majority of the church, by the work of the Spirit, are influenced and broken and sorrowful and repentant. It's a miracle. So the majority, it seems, respond. Even the leader that we'll read about of this this kind of um, faction within the church at Corinth, even he who is the leader repents. And some of the people like, you led us the wrong way, and they are overly, overly severe on him. And Paul's like, let up. Sufficient is the punishment of the majority. Let him go. We'll get to that in chapter 2. So 2 Corinthians is this follow-up letter of a mostly repentant church from what they had done to him, what they had said to him, what, how they had treated him. And again, Paul is the one who is sacrificing himself, traveling about, being whipped, being shipwrecked, going without food, being hungry, not charging them any money for preaching. And there's something in the dynamics of the Corinthian culture and the paganism that carried itself into the church that made him them reject him. But now there's been a softening. And so now he's writing this letter, which is full of compassion, full of grace, full of love. But it's not over yet. The major divisions of the letter verses or chapters one through seven are Paul talking about his history with them and where they've been so far. Basically, he's dealing with them. And it's in these chapters. There's some of the most glorious Christ filled things that we find in my estimation in all of the New Testament of the glory of God in the face of Christ, of the veil lying over those who have not yet turned to Christ. So many of these little snippet passages that we read that in this context come out in Paul's pen. Chapters 8 and 9 are the famous pay up (laughs) y'all passages where they had promised to help some people, some particularly Christian churches who were in great desperate financial means because of disaster that had come on them and they had promised and pledged. And now they're like, they're starting to drift again. And they're like, we're not sure. At least some of them are saying, we're not sure we can trust you, Paul, with our money. Or we're not sure we want to put our resources out to those who are so needy. One of the theologies we're going to see is the Corinthians had bought into this If things are hard for you, you're probably displeasing God. If things are going well for you, you're doing things right. Sound familiar? So chapters 9 and 10, it's Paul urging them, you guys need to follow through. But he doesn't just give them a lecture about the importance of keeping your promises. He takes them deeply into the gospel. In chapters 10 through 13, it's his defense against a group called the super apostles. The super apostles followed up all of this, just like just when Paul seems to be getting the church to come his way, these guys with three-piece suits equivalent, three-piece suits, white teeth, perfect hair, come in with great rhetorical skills, and they come in, they're like, you think Paul's an apostle? (laughs) Well, well, isn't that cute? We're here to show you 
what uber apostles are like. And, and they start being drawn back into that so that they even start accepting another Jesus and another gospel we read in this. So things, again, aren't settled. They are drifting by these super apostles who are boasting about all the things they've done for Christ. And then we come to the end of 1 Corinthians there in chapters 10 and following in what's known as the fool's defense. It was an ancient way uh, of rhetorical skill or of letter writing where somebody would say, they would basically say, I've got things to say that are like socially embarrassing to say, so I'm going to play the part of the fool. And you see, well, Paul will say that. He will say that uh, I boast as a fool. If anyone has reason to boast, I have even more. And he takes on like a court jester disposition and starts boasting about that. And this man who is broken and weak and in and, and nothing to look at and has no like influence or power with this church or very little of it at this point, he takes on the fool, the court jester's position when he writes the last uh, several chapters. So what you need to know more than anything else about Corinthians and 2 Corinthians in particular is to keep in mind the cultural affluence of Corinth and its contribution to the problems that Paul is dealing with. Like it wasn't, well, it was fundamentally a theological problem, but it was a huge cultural problem that he's really dealing with. Now, as we go through 2 Corinthians, it is the most extensively personal and autobiographical of Paul's letters. We learn things about him in 2 Corinthians that Acts doesn't give us and none of the other letters give us. In particular, we see how much Paul suffered for Christ. We get some of it, of course, in his other letters. We hear of the Galatians who would have plucked their own eyes out for him, probably related to some sort of eye disease or eye problem or uh, infection. We have other places in the book of Acts where we're told he's stoned and he's shipwrecked once. Like that, that happened more than once. And we read of starvation. We, we read of fasting. We read of being in peril. We read this laundry list, which is actually a laundry list of his part of, of his fool's defense. Where he says, oh, these guys, they're going to line up. We spoke here. We did this. We built this church. We got this many number to believe. And we had this much success in evangelism. We did this. We did this. And he says, all right, if we're going to be do, doing some boasting. And then he boasts in his weakness. It's a rhetorical reverse um, psychology kind of thing. And, he, and that's the theme of the whole letter is to boast in Christ is to boast in weakness our weakness, and to boast in his strength, not our strength. Again, the majority of the church seems repentant and reconciled, but still there's a vocal minority that is growing in its influence who reject outright or in the least diminish Paul's apostleship. And one commentator I was reading yesterday said, no, they weren't denying it completely or they wouldn't have even read the letter unless it was like reading it out of interest. But at least they're making him a smaller influence of apostle compared to these other super apostles. These super apostles, as far as we can tell, were Jewish leaders and Christians who had come maybe from Jerusalem, who were affluent, who were well-trained, who were well-educated, who were, when they walked in the room, impressive And because of that, they had been deemed as, and they wouldn't outright say, well, Paul's not an apostle at all. They're just saying he's not as much of an apostle as we are because look at his accomplishments compared to ours. Paul's like, okay, I'll tell you about my accomplishments. So this letter, and this is so important to remember, the entire letter, with the possible exception of that middle section where he's talking about, uh, but, I, but I think it works its way even in there, this is a letter of defense. Paul doesn't say, let bygones be bygones. Paul doesn't say, well, it, it's an indifferent matter whether people like me or not. As long as they like are in a church and have some preachers there, that's it. This whole letter, and we're going to see uh, pretty quickly here in chapter 1, even this, this, this opening chapter, which is a chapter about comfort, is, is, is deployed at this point for a very specific strategic purpose. If I don't pick this up, I'm not going to get there. 
But the letter is fundamentally Paul's defense of his apostleship, a call to the cross of Christ to understand, remember 1 Corinthians, were the pneumatikos, the spiritual ones, and it was all about victory. Paul's saying it's not about that kind of worldly victory. It is about the cross. It is suffering now and the crown later. First the cross, then the crown. What we see from this letter is even a man like Paul was not without his critics. And the grace with which he continues to treat the church, to me, absolutely blows me away. I feel like that little boy when I read 2 Corinthians saying, Paul has tapped into something of Jesus and of the gospel. Because I know in comparison what petty, problem, what petty problems I've had in 24 years of ministry, relatively small I mean, they're not even a full pond. They're probably like a little kiddie pool. And then I come to the ocean of Paul and what he does here. And I just think, how does he do this? I don't know about you. Somebody treated me this way and a whole church treated me this way and back talked me this way when I bore the scars for Christ and suffered and prayed And what he calls in chapter uh, 10, a daily anxiety over all of the churches and say, yeah, Paul doesn't really care about us. He's kind of got his own thing going. He's not that impressive. And really, these other guys are better. You know what I would be with this church? I'd be done. But I look at this ocean of the grace of God, which we get hints through. Like, where does Paul get this? And we find that he weaves in where he got this grace to be so gracious to such a church and such a people. I look at that ocean with a certain sense of just absolute awe and say, I hope someday before I die, I will be able to tap into that kind of grace that enables me to love as patiently and faithfully as Paul does. Okay, quickly, hold on. Got 13 minutes here. Verses 1 and 2, we have a somewhat standardized greetings from Paul. Paul, an apostle of Christ, he doesn't say a servant or a bondservant, a doulos, like he often does. Here he's saying right out front, y'all are questioning my apostleship. I am now declaring you, Paul, an apostle. He's confident. He's not shaken. He's not second-guessing himself. He's not like, well, maybe they're right. He's got an inner security that comes from his own Christian experience. It's like, this is not, it doesn't matter in one sense if anybody believes this or not. I know myself to be an apostle of Christ. And I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Like, nobody's going to take that away from him. Nobody's going to rob him of that. He still has a confidence, and that's part of how he's able to deal with this church in this way, is he is confident in the call of God on his life and what God has called him to do. Once we start questioning our calling or being insecure or saying maybe they're right, then there's a shaking. Then there's an undermining. But here he is confident. By the will of God, I am called to be an apostle and Timothy, our brother, who will come up later in the letter as well. Timothy is his, he, he names in the pastoral epistles as his true son in the faith. He names him in Philippians as well. And then here's his greeting to the church of God. Now again, taking all of the history, would we in our hearts have any hesitancy that a church was acting this way? We would actually call the church. And yet Paul doesn't hesitate. Paul, this is the church. She, she, she's a bride, but there's still spots and blemishes and wrinkles that are being worked out. Some more than others. You are the church. The church means the called out ones. You go to Corinth, the Las Vegas of the ancient world. Here's these churches where all of these problems have happened. He's like, there's the ones that God has called out in the world. which some of us want to say, is that really the best we can do? (laughs) But this is what God is doing. This is God's work. This is what God's work looks like. And in my estimation, there's so much romanticizing of the work of the church and the people of the church that there's a constant angst over, 
The sky is falling. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. Well, Paul is not yelling like chickadee, chicken little. Who was that? Was chicken little? Yeah. The sky is falling. He's just like, you are the church. Spots, blemishes, wrinkles, and all. You are the bride of Christ. The church of God. The ones whom God has called. Not only has God called him by the will of God to be an apostle. God has called you as the church, he says. It is the church at Corinth. It's like saying the church at Las Vegas. There's a church there? That's amazing. I didn't think such a thing could even grow in the desert of that decadence. And then he says this, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. And so this means one of probably two things, maybe a little bit of both. Achaia is the region in which Corinth is like the northeastern part of it in the Isthmus. And you can go back and listen to that previous lecture and hear all about Corinth. But it's this whole area. And the question is, why does Paul include them? Because he doesn't say to the churches of Achaia, including the church of Corinth. He says, with all the saints. So it could be that this is a circular letter that will go out to the other churches in Achaia, like Ephesians and Colossians and some others were circular letters. But given the, the, the specific content and personalness of this letter, unlike Ephesians, I don't think this is a circular letter. So why does Paul name the other churches, the saints, the set apart ones, the holy ones who are in Achaia? Here's what I think, and I, I buy this. One commentator suggested this, and I think it's legitimate. Corinth was the city to be in. That you had, you, if, you could, if you could make it there, you, you could make it anywhere. This was the place to be. But Achaia, by Corinth, the, the rest of the regions were not large cities like Corinth. They were not funded by the government they, in the same way. There, there wasn't a, as much multiculturalism. There wasn't as much metropolitan life and art. In other words, all of the rest of, of, of Achaia was just kind of all the rednecks. It, it's all the trailer trash. It's all those people out there who don't have the culture that we have here in Corinth. Corinth really viewed themselves at the like the top of the hierarchy of it churches. Like if you want to move to the it church, the Mecca of Christianity, Corinth is the place to go. And it probably indicates that humble people, more conservative, and this has always been through human history, that you tend to have more liberal, open-minded, I mean liberal in the free sense of the word, not politically or otherwise, but Liberal-minded people, multicultural, more sensitive, more open to new ideas, more open to new creative things and businesses. That happens in the cities. Out there is where people isolate themselves, become hunkered down, or tend, tend to be more conservative, and, and for that reason, backwards and so on. That's just th Those are the caricatures, right, of both, with some truth in both. And that's probably what Corinth thinks of all Achaia. And Paul humbles them and says, you're, you're, you are the church, and I'm writing this not because you're special, but because you're the church together with all of the church in Achaia. So don't raise yourself up, think you're something special, think that you're on the higher le uh, level and plane of Christianity, that you are the it church, because all those conservative, redneck, trailer park Christians out there in all of Achaia, those are your people. Those are your people. I think there's something of that subtly going on. To, for them to be compared and drawn in with all of these other country churches to them would have been appalling. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A lot could be said about that. I've opened it up in other sermons. In verses 3 through 7, we have an apologetic eulogy. It is a blessed be the God and Father of... But here's something that's different from all of Paul's other letters. Normally he says, blessed be the God and Father for the great work that he has done in you. Remember that in Thessalonians and other letters where he says, you know, I thank my God always for you because God has done this in you. And he's just like... Just heaping and even does that in 1 Corinthians. Here he does something different. He says, blessed be the God and Father for the grace he has given me. 
And if we're familiar enough with Paul's opening, that if our ears are tuned into that, it's like, what? Like, that's really different. This is not how Paul opens letters. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. Let me point out here, this is strange. This is strange, and here's why it's strange. As we're going to go through the letter, the Corinthian church was not a suffering church. They were not a people who were being persecuted and downcast. You could do this Christian thing in Corinth relatively easy because they were open to new ideas. And, you know, if you're a Christian, if you're this, if you're that, as long as you kind of let us do our thing, you're fine too. It's not like the Jewish synagogues. It's not like in Jewish population centers. That's where the highest level at this time of persecution came was from the Jews themselves. Later, it will be the Roman, the Roman Caesars and Domitian and so on. So here we have a passage of comfort for people who don't need comfort. And that's just strange. If you remember back a year or two years ago, whenever it was, 1 Peter was a letter of comfort written to a suffering people. Here's a letter of comfort that's written to a people that aren't suffering, but think themselves to be quite successful and happy. So watch what Paul is doing here. Remember, this is an apologetic eulogy. Apology, apologia, apology means a defense. This is a defensive eulogy. In other words, he's opening up defending himself. Okay, so watch this. Who comforts us in all our affliction. Now, we read this as 21st century readers. And we include this as like a universal principle. And as we'll see, rightly so, comforts us in all our affliction. Here's the thing. Paul doesn't mean by us here Christians in general. We're going to see he's specifically talking a rhetorical us, and he means me. Or those that were associated with me, or those who suffered with me in this ministry. That's who he means here. So it's a very personalized open, opening, unlike the others, who comforts us in all our affliction. Notice he doesn't say who rescues us from all our affliction, who comforts us in it so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Now, the word all, pan or pas, is three times here. In all affliction, God of all comfort, and those who are in all or any, ESV translates it, affliction. There's an emphasis here. This is what Paul is emphasizing, that he is the father of mercy, the father, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, he's speaking of himself, so that we may be able to comfort others and those who are in any affliction. Why does Paul start with this? Let's continue to follow along. To comfort them with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. What is Paul doing here? Paul is answering the charge that his suffering is due to the fact that he's not obedient to God or he's not a super apostle. He's actually answering the charge in a very subtle way where they would say his sufferings are evidence of the absence of God's presence. He's saying, no, we have known God's presence in the midst of our suffering. And the reason is because there is a world of suffering out there for Christ. And the reason that that gift and grace is given to us is so we may be comforted and we might be able to comfort others. Now, let me just say a word about the suffering that's spoken of here. There's a sense in which this is true of life for the Christian, of cancer, of a debilitating disease, of loss of job. There's a sense that generically speaking, it's true. God comforts us in the midst of these things of what we would call the general sufferings of the world that is, is not unique to Christians. But that's not what Paul is talking about in this passage. He's talking about specific afflictions and sufferings that come as a result that if I was not a follower of Jesus, I would not suffer in this way. Okay, so generally this is a principle we apply and say, can I answer one of the reasons or what, what one of the, the purposes of my suffering, of your suffering, is so that when God comforts us and teaches us about himself through that, we can comfort others in just general life difficulties? Is that true? Yes, it's true. 
but it's not what this passage is fundamentally doing. You want to know why God was afflicting, or, or, or however you want to put it, afflicting that Paul was being afflicted by these things? It's so he would be comforted because he had taught in other places that through many sufferings, through many trials, through many difficulties, we must enter the kingdom of God. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4 that if any one of you suffers as a Christian, it doesn't mean suffering being a Christian, but suffering because of being a Christian. That's different. And that's what he's dealing with here. So in answer to the question, well, Paul, if Jesus loves you so much, and there's all of this suffering that you are suffering in your life, why is that? And his response is, to live this life as a Christian, committed to him, will bring suffering. And the reason we are suffering is because we have a suffering Savior who then we fellowship in his suffering, and through that, we are able to comfort others who are suffering for his name's sake. Now, I have to say in preparing for this sermon that when you put the realm of the sufferings that are common to people, we all, we all I mean, everything from lost children to lost spouses, the loss of parents, of death, of sickness, of, of accident, of of disaster, of all these things. Those are things that are common. They have nothing to do with being a Christian. Then there's this other category of things that particularly I am afflicted and suffer financially and physically and psychologically and mentally deeply in this silo of because I'm a Christian and all I'd have to do is not be a Christian and I wouldn't suffer those things. Our silo, at least my silo, is very, very small and doesn't even feel like it exists compared to the common suffering. So what we're dealing with is a world in which this silo is large and it is severe and it is serious. And we'll read about that in Paul's suffering later. For sake of time, once you get that, you kind of understand what he's saying here. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. There are things about the gospel that suffering as a Christian has particular effectiveness and power to, even above the common sufferings. And we won't go into that. I covered some of that when we looked at First Peter. And then he says this, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. How is that? Because what Paul is doing in traversing the ancient world and suffering shipwreck and going hungry and being at peril of strangers and peril of of the Jews and in peril of the Gentiles, of being shipwrecked, of being naked, of being whipped, of beaten, rotted, and stoned, all of that, he says, we do that. It's for the sake of the church because the gospel is that important, because the glory of Christ is that important. If we do that, it's so that you may be comforted with the gospel and that you may be comforted and given salvation. It's for you that we are doing this. And to have a church say, well, that just shows God isn't with you. I mean, it's, it's, it's the classic, a child saying to, to mom or dad who's sacrificed and done things, it's like, well, you just don't love me. To which mama says, I bore you out of my body, child. What is wrong with you? And that's, that's the Corinthian church. But Paul, he doesn't love us. And he's ripping us off. And they're going to make some ugly accusations financially about him. But he says, look, like a mama looks at her scars and says, this is what I've done to bring you into this world. Paul looks at his scars and his suffering and the pain and the scarring on his back and says, these are the birthmarks for your sake. If I'm afflicted, it's for your sake, he says. Again, the, the level of sacrifice by Paul and the level of ingratitude of this church is such a chasm. I, 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 I don't think I have what it takes. <laughs> I hope I would, but to endure this, this is just remarkable. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer, because he knows suffering is coming for the Corinthian church. That the Christian movement is under the radar of Rome for now. But by the time Paul goes to Rome, 
And Rome catches wind of what this new movement is. This, this, this persecution, like it's coming. You better have a good theology of suffering, he says to them, before it comes because it's coming your way. Our hope. How can he even say this to this church? Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Sorry, that's off the bottom of the screen. So he's working in some theology that we'll see in the unfolded in the next couple of chapters. All right, I've lost connection with my screen. Okay, I'm moving on to verses 8 through 11. We do not want you to be aware. Now he's going to I'm wrap this up. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. So this is another part. This is across the, uh, the Aegean Sea there. This is over... Your way, it's over here. Uh, complete, it's it's in, in what we call Asia Minor, Minor, Turkey today. It's a whole different area. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so... Now, this is, this is Paul's description of his suffering for being an apostle and a Christian. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. We, th- we thought we were dead. Now, some of us perhaps have experienced that by physical problems or being in a car accident or otherwise. But here for Paul, it is for preaching the gospel. He said, we were burdened beyond our strength so that we despaired of life. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Like, That's it. We're done. We're dead. They're coming for our head. That's that's what we thought had happened. No more letters, no more prayers, no more. We are going to be with Jesus now. And then he says in verses 8 through 11, the afflictions about them, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves. Man, I wish there was an easier lesson other than suffering to learn reliance on God rather than ourselves. But the reason for Paul's suffering, he says, is that was to make us not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Like when you are at your death sentence, walking down the place you've had last rites, you've had your last meal, and you're walking to the electric chair. It's like the only hope I have now is resurrection from the dead. And that's what Paul says in his suffering and experience. Our only hope was that God raises the dead. Otherwise, we had no hope. But then he says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us on him. We have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf. And what he is doing is then he is recruiting them to pray for him in the midst of his suffering. So not only has he defended it in this way, now he's saying, and I need you to pray for me. Don't criticize me. Don't downplay my part. Don't go with the super apostles and the minority of the church that is being influenced by them. But when you see my suffering, pray for me so that when God answers, whether it's through death or whether it's through deliverance, that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayer of many. All right. So that's that's the opening of the letter. Quick applications here. First of all, we see the parallel in Paul between the suffering apostle and the suffering Jesus. The whole idea that Jesus suffers death, is raised from the dead so that we can live our best life now and kind of supersede everything and just ride above the common race and be successful in our businesses and successful in our marriages and successful in our child rearing and successful in all the things we do in life. And we're going to be well-known authors and we're going to do this. And there's going to be a big, you know, we're just going to do this. And when we, we know God's favor with blessing, we just see that that's just not the case. What Paul actually says here is like living for Christ. Yes, not to say that those things may or may not come. But the evidence of living for Christ is suffering for Christ. Or at least one of the evidences. 
But there's a parallel between the suffering apostle and the suffering Jesus. And we have, I have an allergy to discomfort. Well, that can't be the will of God because that might be hard <laughs> or, or uncomfortable or difficult. Or I actually might have to say no to what I want and yes to something else. But Paul here is an embodiment, if you will, of the fullness of the spirit in a human being who is, of course, called as an apostle to suffer an unusual amount. But, but if it weren't for Paul's suffering, humanly speaking, if it weren't for this Paul suffering for the sake of the Gentiles, we wouldn't be here today as Christians. Humanly speaking, God could have raised up somebody else. But we have a suffering Savior, which gives us a suffering apostle, which prepares for a suffering church, for the name of Christ. What we see in this passage is the exaltation of God, not in shining victory that has the best suits, the best cars, the best buildings, and the best programs, but the exaltation of God through comfort, through suffering. If you want to know if a people know God, how do they do through their suffering? How do they do through disappointments? How do they do through the difficulties that come in following Jesus? Thirdly, we will read, and, and if, if you feel like I do, I mean, any of you feel like, told Kimberly this morning, uh, like I feel like an infant. You know, I thought, you know, maybe I'm like a teenage Christian by now. You know, I've kind of figured some things out and, you know, still got a lot to learn. And it's like reading Paul and what he goes through and about his grace to this church, man, I feel like a, a newborn infant. Like I have no idea what I'm doing. But the good news is Paul will actually share with us through the letter the kinds of things that empowered him and enabled him. Because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done, that will empower him as it can empower us to do those things for his glory. So I hope you're anticipating that. We're going to see things about Jesus that we don't read in any of the epistles. They're, they're just remarkable. And, and really what it comes down to is his relationship with Jesus. That's it. Y'all, in one of the Sunday school classes, are studying Mark, talking about Jesus. It's going to be very dovetailed in that sense with this letter where there is so much of Jesus and so much of Christ in this and so much of the gospel that we, we, Paul's going to actually take us to the waters and say, here's, here's where I get strength. Here is where I get comfort. Here is where I can suffer joyfully. Here is where I can find hope in the midst of despairing. And he's going to lead us to the waters of Christ over and over and over again. What we see in this letter is a success for Christ contrast or success for Christ contrasted with suffering for Christ. Suffering for him is the success. I believe that. And as I thought, like, who, who do I know personally? Like, I, I know missionaries who were killed on the mission field. I know, I know a few have suffered in different ways. And I'm convinced that on the judgment day, before the throne, most of the people we consider Christian heroes are going to be way, way back with us. The authors, the successful, the celebrities, the well-known. I mean, we're there. We're there together. We're not better than them. They're not better. We're there. And the further up we look, we'll become a people whose names we don't know, who are obscured, who lived in obscurity, who sacrificed for Christ, who never wrote anything, who nobody knew their name except for the circle of people that they were able to bring the gospel to in China or in the Hebrides or in Asia or wherever it may be. That up at the front of the throne, I think it, it, there's a gradation of suffering for Christ that the closer you get are those who have suffered and rejoiced in Christ most deeply. I truly believe that. That the light will shine brighter as you get closer to the throne and the light is created luminously by suffering for him. So... May the Lord bless our entrance into this letter. I hope it gives you some of the texture and some of the, the sense of where we're headed with the letter. And may God bless as we study his word. Let's pray, please. Lord, we offer this to you as a 
kid raised on the pond trying to take a tour of the ocean uh, and to guide people. And I, I feel myself overwhelmed by the grace seen in, in Paul himself and in this letter. So please bless us. I pray that you would speak to us individually. I pray that you would, through your word, minister to us, that you would please um, keep the devil at bay from using uh, your word incorrectly like he, he, he attempts to do with Jesus. He's able to do that even now. And what should be a word of comfort and encouragement could be a discouragement to someone. I pray that would not be so, but that through this series, we're inspired and lifted and encouraged and helped to count all things lost for the sake of the knowledge of Christ. That for us to live would be Christ and to die gain. We pray in Jesus' name.